It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Today, I have an interview with Jared Kushner, the uh, son-in-law, obviously, of former President Trump. He also has a new book called Breaking History, which delves into a lot of different issues uh, regarding both his time in government in Washington uh, and particularly his work within the realm of foreign policy, where he was able to achieve a number of advancements, particularly uh, uh, pushing forward with the Abraham Accords and bringing the Arab world into a new agreement uh, in terms of its understanding of Israel. Uh, Jared Kushner talked to me about a lot of different issues that were uh, front of mind when it came to his approach to working in the White House uh, and, of course, internal conflicts with a lot of different people within the Trump administration. We had a polite conversation, uh, one that I think uh, is informative and also uh, has a number of details related to the Mar-a-Lago raid, his expectations for the future for his father-in-law, uh, and what he gained in terms of his understanding of American politics coming from the world of business. Jared Kushner, coming up next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news, twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Jared Kushner, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Uh, thank you. It's good to be with you, Ben. Um, I read your book with interest, and there's a line in particular that stuck out to me uh, in uh, coming out of a conversation that you recount with Steve Bannon early in the administration, where you say, I don't talk to the press. I've never leaked on anyone. I wouldn't know how to leak. Did you learn? <laughs> so it's funny. You write a, uh, uh, you write a, uh, I guess like a 450 page book. And uh, it's always interesting, like which lines are going to land in which places with which people. But, um, you know, what I learned about uh, leaking is that there was actually a book, uh, Gatekeepers by Chris Whipple, which was one of the best books I read when I was in Washington. And something kind of struck a chord with me, which was uh, Jim Baker, who you know, was thought to be one of you know, the top two chiefs of staff, um, you know, at least in, in the modern era. And he basically said there's a difference between leaking and spinning. And he said that leaking was giving out pre-decisional information uh, to the press or kind of talking crap about one of your colleagues. And spinning is trying to help the press better understand the president's policies. So up until I kind of had that revelation, I basically had like a, a no-speak-to-the-press policy because coming from the business world, the press just didn't help you at all. Right? It was a very kind of... Uh, it was a very good calculation, right? You have more money in the bank, you did a good job, you have less, you did a bad job. So that was really the metric for success. But I was learning that in politics, even if you get something done, if people don't understand that you got it done, uh, there's kind of no partial credit. And so uh, I worked with White House comms and I told them that I'd be uh, available to speak to the press when they needed me to. 
Uh, but I never got into uh, giving out stuff on colleagues or giving pre-decisional information. I just felt like that was counterproductive. I, I do write about a scene where I was thinking about it because I was getting leaked on by Bannon. Um, mm-hmm. Crazy. But I, I kind of realized that if you're not, your heart's not into something, you'll never be good at it. And I just felt like I'd get, you, you can't out, out, out leak a master leaker. And so I chose ultimately to just keep my head down and try to get things done. The funniest line of the book for me, or the funniest graph of the book for me, is where you quote Stephen Miller uh, 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 talking about splitting up Bannon's responsibilities. And it's just a list of the different people to leak to. Um, Stephen did you... had a dry sense of humor, but he was, he was actually quite funny in a lot of instances that people wouldn't expect. <laughs> did you have this feeling when you parachuted into the DC scene that this was an environment in which the surrounding crew of people with their tendency towards leaking was going to be as damaging to this administration as at least in the early days they turned out to be? Or was that something that kind of took you by surprise? So I'll say it took me by surprise on both ends. Like number one is I I did not expect for it to be as vicious or as brutal or as frequent as it was. And what it does is it just creates a lot of distrust amongst people in the administration, which makes it harder to have conversations, right? The conversations you need to have is let's all come together. Let's agree on an outcome. It's okay to disagree on how to get there, but then we have to have constructive agreements. Let's present options to the president, let him decide. And then, you know, some people will win the argument, some will lose, but you know, then we all get on the same team and we execute. Um, I was shocked, you know, again, how prevalent it was. But then I also was shocked. Again, I started reading a lot more history when I was in Washington to kind of get guidance and precedent. But it also, it, we weren't the first administration to have it. And uh, it's something that's, that's, that's been around for a very, very long time, uh, unfortunately. You are someone who came into politics having been at the top of other areas of industry in America. And so because of that, you bring both an intelligent eye to it, but also one that is essentially coming at it with a foreigner's view. Um, And this is something that ultimately, at least in the framing of the book, you describe as kind of ways that that served you well. But did it serve you poorly when it came to anticipating the ways that people would essentially uh, engage in political machinations with the help, obviously, of a compliant media in many senses around you in order to try to defeat your purposes. Very much so. Look, the, the Washington is not designed to welcome insiders. It's, 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 it's almost designed to kind of beat them up when they come in and force them to either join the crew that's there or it just mercilessly beats them up until they, they kind of go home crying. And, you know, what I tried to do in the book was just be very honest about my experience. Again, I'm not telling people what to think one way or the other, but just to say, what is it like to be somebody who had no designs or experience of being in Washington, coming into Washington as what I thought was a normal person who had achieved things in other industries. And then what that discovery process was like, what mistakes I made, what I learned from those mistakes, but ultimately how things can get done. And again, one of the things that I thought was very uh, interesting about the the Trump uh, period in Washington was that he was an outsider. He was a businessman. He was very results-oriented. Uh, he, he really ripped up a lot of the norms and, and really discarded a lot of the processes. And again, in some instances, 
uh, that achieved great results. In some instances, it caused frustrations for people, but uh, it was an unbelievable challenge to our system that had grown very complacent over what I would call the previous 30 years, where you had a lot of career establishment people who were in it. Um, and so that's really what I try to do. And again, I'm honest about my biases. Uh, one thing that I, I think is also very apparent is that a lot of the media that covered us, they weren't really honest or introspective about their own biases. And so uh, I think it's it's for somebody, again, people talk so much about Washington. They talk so much about Trump. He's good. He's bad. Uh, everyone knows better than everyone in Washington. But this is one book that I think for people who want to understand what happened inside the Trump administration and what actually happens inside Washington on legislation, on foreign policy, on campaigns. I think it gives uh, a lot of good insights into that, which is one of the reasons why I wrote it. How much of the attempts to target uh, the president from the intelligence side, uh, the entire community that obviously Chuck Schumer famously said uh, could screw you six ways uh, before Sunday, um, how much of that do you believe was organic and how much of it was an intentional process that played out according to uh, the aims of a lot of different figures bent on bringing the president down? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I worked over the course of four years with, I would say, hundreds of amazing officials from the intelligence community, from uh, the, the trade community, from you know, field agents at the FBI working on counterterrorism who were absolutely amazing, right? And if you would have asked me what jersey they were wearing, whether it was like, you know, blue team or red team, I would have just said, you know, it's the, the one that's behind your head, which is the red, white, and blue, you know, pro-America, there to serve. But it only takes a, a couple of bad apples to, uh, to go out and try to cause a problem, right? So you think about the impeachment, you had, you know, one gentleman who basically thought that the consensus of, of kind of the, the process was more important than what the president decided, and then you had leaks to the intel community, and they took things out of out of context. And and between that and, and kind of a weaponized House process, um, you know, you had real problems that were very disruptive. So I, I think that the intel community has a ton of power. I think they do a lot of amazing things, right? When it comes to like finding a terrorist in a cave in the middle of nowhere and then eliminating them with a massively expensive weapon, there's nobody better in the world. But when it comes to kind of trade deals, you know, the amount of times that they would think that because they like listened to somebody's cell phone who was like three layers away saying that something wasn't going to happen meant that it wouldn't happen. Um, it just, it was just, you know, kind of pathetic how little context sometimes the analysts had as to kind of how the world actually works and what, what common sense is. So, yeah, we definitely, uh, got, had problems that were caused because of it. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a complicated place and a place that's very resistant to change. If there's one thing that you could inform uh, Americans, the average American, about the nature of the bureaucracy, you know, whether you're describing it as, as the swamp or something else, what would it be? Because there does seem to be an underlying dynamic in your book of being exposed time and again to the amount of power and the amount of authority they wield in ways that can prove uh, very much the enemy of change. I actually think that it would be a positive message, which is that there's so many amazing people in the government that have given the, the, the clear goals and the empowerment and can accomplish things. Like I write one story about how during COVID, uh, initially there was like a mad dash to find supplies. Yeah. And it wasn't just us in America. It was everyone around the world. So you think about it where you only have like a certain amount of supplies because it's not 
built for kind of peak demand like we were experiencing. Everyone was hoarding. And I've run a group of private equity guys who were just dialing and trying to chase down all the different leads that we were getting. You know, everyone had masks, everyone had, you know, different solutions, but we were basically calling, we were actually finding a lot more stuff than we anticipated. But the problem was, is the, the FEMA procurement system isn't really designed to operate in a crisis. It's like six months, sign all the paperwork. So I tell a story about how I got a call from the, the team at FEMA and they said, we're finding stuff, we're going to lose it to other buyers who are going to pay more, pay faster. And so... I called uh, Pat Cipollone and Russ Vogt. Russ was the uh, the LMB, kind of like the CFO of America. Pat was our lawyer. We got in my car. We went over to FEMA. And I said, what is it going to take for us to kind of give you insertion orders? Give us whatever requirements you want. We could have third parties go and verify that it was not big product, that it was good. Tell us what it's going to take so that you can, like, wire money in 10 minutes. I said, is it legal authority? These is it money? Like, we're under an emergency. Like, we'll find you whatever you need. And they said, well, you got to speak to Bobby McCann. I said, who's Bobby McCann? It was like the Wizard of Oz in the building. And finally, they bring him in. I was like, Bobby, like you tell, like you've got the guy who's got the money, the guy who's got the legal authority. Call me back within the next couple hours. Tell me what you need to get it done. And if you don't have it done, I'll come back. And, and within an hour and a half, they had it resolved. And the amount of stuff we procured was incredible. And unlike a lot of people, like, you know, the Governor Hogan bought all these tests that turned out to be phony. Not a single thing we bought ended up to be busted. Uh, we outpaced everyone else. We bought all the things we got. And that was just an example of thinking like a private sector person, but empowering the bureaucracy who did an amazing job. If uh, I've known Russ now for almost a decade, and uh, and one of the things that he's very useful at is discovering the guy in the building who has the giant <laughs> ring of keys, you know, to open all the different doors. He's, uh, he's very much in the, I need to know the most powerful janitor. Um, one of the things that comes up a couple of times in this book is uh, is you recounting incidents in which you're basically busting the balls of the people around you, whether it relates to the Sultan of Oman meeting or Jay Sekulow or, you know, a number of these other instances where you kind of are, are ribbing the people around you in ways that seem, I think, a little or would seem a little surprising given your public persona. How much of that were you willing to put in this book? Uh, in a way that would kind of depict the honest way that people actually interact behind the scenes. Um, just given that you know, there are a lot of people who they keep that out of the memoirs of their time in government. They don't feel, uh, you know, that uh, that those are the kinds of things that they want to share. Was this something that was intentional on your part to just sort of say, hey, yeah, actually, I'm a human and not a robot? But I, I think that we're all humans and not robots. And I actually thought that that was very important because a lot of the foreign policy successes. And again, I write about the peace deals we made in the Middle East, how we accomplished those. I write about the trade deals, but a lot of it comes down to personal relationship, right? You're, you're dealing between sovereign nations, but you have representatives who are there. And if you can form a bond and form trust, the goal is always to take people and not say, I'm against you, is to say, how can we be on the same side, agree on objectives and work together to try to to try to navigate the challenges and achieve it. So, you know, the Sultan Oman is, is one of my favorite scenes, you know, in the book that, that we did, where basically you have this, you know, six hour meeting till four in the morning. And, you know, I describe how, you know, we sit down, there's all these, you know, waiters, there's a 30 course menu. And it wasn't like you choose from like the soups and then you choose from the mains. It's like, get one soup, then the next soup, literally four hours later. But I also write about the wisdom that he gave me. This guy was leading for 50 years and basically founded modern Oman. He was the only living uh, leader at the time uh, who was a founder of the GCC. And he really gave me a lot of uh, good wisdom that allowed me to understand the difference between the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is what held back for years. And the JSEC was seeing you 
mentioned, I think was one of the funniest scenes because again, it shows how, you know, again, we're all human beings. It was during the impeachment. Jay probably hadn't slept for like three or four weeks straight. And he was freaking out because we were dealing with an issue that I just saw very clearly, I thought. And again, like, who knows, right? Sometimes you think you see it clearly and it turns out to be a mistake. But, you know, I was basically seeing how, you know, there was a new allegation that was threatening to get the senators to want to call witnesses in the impeachment trial. And I basically said, no, 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 nothing new here. We could defuse this with a statement. And Jay starts to say, don't talk to my clients. And I said, Jay, calm down. He says, I am calm. And I basically went and gave him a big hug. And I said, just calm down, Jay. We're going to be just fine. And then again, he did a masterful job on the legal parts. And, and we had a great relationship and worked very closely together. Uh, but again, it was a time where the stress does get to people. And that's why you have to have a team of people you trust. So that stories like that, like you said in the first question, don't get out to the media in real time. They're obviously told in retrospect, not to show tension when something's uh, happening that could potentially go very bad, but it was something ultimately we, we won the we won the impeachment case by 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 a landslide, picked up ten points of approval during the process, and so you can tell a funny moment like that. I think in a memoir that that gives context into both the intensity but also the personality. Which comedian does the best impression of your father-in-law, and why? Ooh, that's uh, that's that's a very good question. Uh, nobody liked the the current guy. I forget his name. The guy who shot uh, the person on the set. Uh, <laughs> like, he, he, he was no, always very no. angry. Oh no, no one, no one, no one thinks he's does yeah, the best the, one. The, the guy before him was actually excellent. I think it was like Daryl Hannah. Daryl Hammond, yes. Uh, Daryl yeah. Hammond, he, he was yeah. excellent. And uh, and there's just actually another uh, one. I can't remember who's doing it, but my wife showed me the other day on Twitter, which was also uh, pretty either. It was probably either Shane Gillis or or Jamie Foxx. It was Jamie Foxx. It was incredible. Yes. And he was talking actually about Harry O, who is one of the amazing gentlemen who, who we gave a pardon to. He's doing incredible things now to help yes. a lot of people. But that, that one was absolutely hysterical. So, look, you know, people forget that Trump's been doing this for a long time. He's been around. He's been part of pop culture uh, for a long time. And, and what is uh, what is the key? What is the key to a good impression? I think that the, the tone, but then also the cadence is very important. As well. The cadence. The cadence, mm-hmm. the cadence is critical because he does have a particular way of communicating. Does he, so. does he use that? Does he use that cadence even when he isn't on camera? Uh, one thing about him is he's remarkably similar on camera than off camera. The only thing I kind of push him on is, you know, and I'll say like, just, you know, be less aggressive towards people. He'll say, well, don't don't try to change me. Like I have to be who I am. I said, no. I want people to see who you are because when he's off camera, he's usually more of the jovial, joking person that you see on camera. That obviously, when he would joke, sometimes you know the press would take him more literally, and then write that he said some asinine thing that uh, mm-hmm. that he was usually joking about. But he does have a very funny sense of humor, and I tried to bring that across in this book. You have a line uh, from him. You you quote him relatively rarely directly, and but but there's one that you. Uh, one moment where you do quote him directly uh, about uh, a negative reaction to Brett Kavanaugh becoming overcome uh, and crying in front of of uh, the Senate, and you and you say, Jared, you go down before you cry. Now, I think you obviously had the right of that situation, given that you know most people, I think, you know, responded to that moment, and politically, it played very much, I think, to Brett Kavanaugh's advantage in that moment. Um, in a way that that uh, uh, played out, but that was an interesting thing to me that he chose to make that point to you. What do you think he meant by that? 
I think he was he was probably joking. You know, I think that it's. Uh, I thought it was a very funny moment because you had the intensity of uh, of the uh, the Kavanaugh hearing, which again he thought was going to be smooth. I mean, he's a he is a brilliant jurist. He was qualified, mm. you know, by by any standard. And then all of a sudden, he's accused of gang rapes and, and all these other crazy things, which were just disproven. And actually, that night uh, we were at the swearing-in ceremony. After he said that, I'll, I'll give the context of the story for those who haven't read it. Where we're on the helicopter and Trump's reviewing his remarks uh, that he was going to give that night. And he turns to me. Again, he was always, you know, soliciting opinions. under him and says, so what do you think of the crime? And I, I said, I said, look, I think it worked for him. And he says, yeah, he says, you go down before you cry. <laughs> and so I think he was just joking about it. But at that, that night, a lot of the Bush folks were there because they'd worked with him. And they basically said, like, we think Bush would have cut, cut, cut bait on this one when it got hot. And we were very impressed with how Trump, you know, took on the fight and was willing to stand by him. And really, that was the difference between him becoming the Supreme Court justice or not. And um, and so that was just a, a funny instance. But as somebody who also has had a, uh, you know, a very colorful father-in-law, you know, sometimes there, there's things that they'll say who uh, it will be kind of an unusual statement, but it's, it's often meant as a joke. You, uh, you write, obviously, about the early cabinet choices and a number of them, uh, you know, and, and also, of course, John Kelly, a number of them come into this with phenomenal on paper resumes, at least by, you know, the, the uh, measure of Washington. And that, of course, includes people like Rex Tillerson, people like Jeff Sessions. Uh, you know, uh, Kelly's obviously someone who, uh, you know, had enormous respect from Washington. Jim Mattis, you know, another of these people. Um, in a lot of uh, cases, these are people who ultimately turned out to be, you know, whether from the perspective of of uh, people on on the right who, you know, were hopeful for them or not, uh, disappointments, you know, people who didn't uh, deliver on what a lot of people hoped they would be able to do. And uh, it, I wonder from your perspective why you think that is, because on paper, I think a lot of people would say, you know, these are folks who are qualified for these jobs or they've they've earned the right to have these kinds of positions. Uh, but ultimately, you know, they were people who couldn't really meet the demands of the moment. Did that have more to do with them or the nature of Washington or the demands of the particular administration? What was the reason for that? So one thing we learned, and again, it, you know, it took us a while to get the right personnel in place, is that Trump was a different kind of president. He also was much more ambitious than most presidents. Right? Most presidents said, let's do one thing at a time, or let's get managed by the staff. Trump was trying to do everything at once, and then he was also trying to change everything. Right? He, he viewed it like it wasn't a left versus right election. It was outside versus inside. He was sent by the people who were uh, angry about all the endless wars and their, their sons and daughters being sent over seas to, to fight. Uh, for wars that you know didn't have much to do with America from from their point of view, and then you had all these trade deals where uh, where we basically were sending all of our factories overseas, a lot of jobs overseas, and people were just pissed off about it. And so Trump came in wanting to fight against the established thinking on both of those things, and I think a lot of these people didn't agree with him fundamentally, and also weren't willing to make those implementations. Now the early years, and I write about this in the book, is it's about finding ways, I mean, it goes from the campaign where you make a promise to then figuring out when you're, you know, playing with live ammo, how do you turn a promise into an actual tactical policy and then implement it? These are very delicate things because there's dynamite behind every door. But I think a lot of them were 
maybe they, they fell for the media. They were trying to please the media instead of bringing change, and change is very hard. Uh, some of them just didn't agree with Trump. Some were used to being maybe CEOs and didn't realize that when you're a secretary, you called secretary, not minister, because it's de- delegated authority from the person who's elected. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's one line that, that Lighthizer says to me in the book where he says, you know, we have two types of people in the administration. You know, some people think that Trump is saving the world and some people are trying to save the world from Trump. And the latter have no business being here. And I would see this time and time again when people would leave after a stint and they basically didn't accomplish anything. The whole like postmortem that they would try to put out in the press is, oh, I prevented all these incredible travesties from happening. I'm like, well, that's your job. Like, that's like paying your mortgage, right? You're supposed to do that. Um, and uh, you don't get credit for that. And at the end of the day, like you only get credit for getting things done. And that's what it really is about. So uh, again, there were some people who had unconventional resumes who got a lot of things done. And some people had perfect resumes who got nothing done. But again, I, I tried doing this book. I have four chiefs of staff uh, that I, I served with. I had four national security advisors over 30 cabinet secretaries. I tried to just give people from my perspective what it was like to serve with each of them, some of the different personalities that they had, some of the different interactions that people can try to draw for themselves, what worked and what didn't, not only under President Trump, but also in Washington. And again, one of my goals with this book is for people who aren't from Washington to get a better insight into how it works. And I, I hope that more people from the private sector go into Washington. And if they do, hopefully from this book, they can avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made initially as well and learn from my experiences to be hopefully more successful than I was much faster. Uh, that I was. You quote uh, H.R. McMaster uh, as warning against the possibility of replacing him with uh, John Bolton. (laughs) Why do you think that the president chose uh, John Bolton? uh, And uh, why? And and I assume you think that that choice was a mistake. Why was it made? Uh, I think that that was done for two reasons. One is he felt, I believe he felt like Kelly, Tillerson, Mattis were trying to take his foreign policy away, and he felt like he needed a blunt object to basically remind them that he was the one in charge and not them. And again, I, I actually feel very badly for McMaster because I think he didn't agree with the president on, on some issues, like he wanted to stay in Afghanistan, he, yeah. certain things, he did, but he also was very supportive of the president on a lot of issues. And But one thing with HR is he really did play the role of the honest broker. He framed uh, the policies and then tried to implement, but he was stifled by a lot of the others. And I saw, again, Washington's a lot of like little dynamics that kind of lead to the bigger dynamics, but there's a lot of like petty knifing. Again, you don't become like a four star in the military without being pretty savvy politically. But the four stars in, in Kelly and Mattis were basically knifing McMaster like crazy. Basically, he was giving them orders on behalf of the president and their presidential decisions to do things. They were blatantly not doing it. And then when the president was asked them why it wasn't getting done, they were blaming it on McMaster. So it was just an interesting dynamic that I observed. At that point, I'd learned to kind of stay back and let it play out because they were all big boys. Um, but I also think with Trump, he liked the notion with Bolton that everyone thought he was going to go to war with everyone, and it gave him more negotiating space. So you saw how he liked to surround himself with hawks and guns. And, and that he also, well, he kept everyone off balance, right? I mean, again, say what you want. You know, no new wars, you know, six-piece deals, uh, made all these trade deals. But there is one very funny story I, I write in the book about how uh, Marcelo Abrad, who's the foreign minister of Mexico, <laughs> comes up because he was working with us on the uh, immigration issues. And he was a very, very capable person, did an incredible job, very, very smart, represented Mexico fiercely. He came in because we were collaborating very well on the border and had to implement the trade deal. 
and we bring him in to update Trump. And it was the morning that John Bolton got fired and President Trump starts the meeting. And keep in mind, you're walking into the Oval Office, which is the greatest home court in, you know, maybe the history of the world. And he's sitting down there and he says to Marcelo, he says, you know, I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, we fired John Bolton this morning. He says, yes, I saw. He says, you know, John, he was crazy. He wanted to go to war with North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, everyone all at one time. But, you know, this morning he called me up and said, Mr. President, we're ready. The military's ready. We have to invade Mexico. And I said, that's it. That's too far. I would never do that to my friend Amlo. That's it, John. You're fired. I think Marcelo didn't know that it was a joke, but then he saw us start laughing and realized that it was a joke. But it was a very, very funny moment. And uh, obviously, John wasn't a great fit for him. He did some things well. Um, but uh, but obviously, ultimately, I think, again, just didn't have an ability to get along with people um, and, uh, and, and, and wasn't that effective and didn't get much done. You tell one anecdote uh, that I want to be sure to get to uh, about uh, a confrontation that you had with Senator Richard Burr. Um, and it seems to me sort of a moment where a lot of the frustration that you had with this, uh, with everything that you were getting from the uh, intel investigations and and pouring over all these different things uh, motivated, uh, you know, as it turned out in a lot of respects, you know, not by wanting to get to the truth, but trying to damage the administration. Um, that's uh, you. You kind of have this confrontational uh, moment with the senator. I wonder kind of if you could walk us through what built up to that, because that's something that you rarely see happen uh, in terms of, of, of Washington. Most people are very deferential, um, but it seemed like you know you were kind of triggered in that moment to, to push back against what he was saying to you. Yeah. So first of all, I think I was actually extremely deferential as a general principle in my dealings with the Senate and the House, but you have to put yourself in my shoes. I, again, I try to do this with the reader is that you know, you get into this campaign that you weren't expected to get into. The campaign is absolutely thrilling. It's 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 exciting. You're traveling the country. Uh, you're total underdogs, right? Hillary has the entire media, everyone on her side, and it's basically Trump and his kids. And uh, and then he pulls it off and he wins. And so you go to Washington. Instead of them saying, "Okay, we were wrong. Maybe you misjudged the country." Uh, they basically start saying, oh, well, the only excuse for that he won is that the Russians were involved. And I think for the media, it was easier to just go with that narrative than to have introspection and say, okay, maybe we were wrong about the country or we misjudged something. And so that starts. And so they announced that they want to speak to me. And I said at first person, I raised my hand and said, I'll come speak to you guys. I have no problem. I uh, you know, didn't do anything wrong, nothing to hide. So I go and I testify before the Senate. I was the first person to do that. Then I go and I testify before the House. I put out a long statement, which basically Again, like you see what's happening now with like Mar-a-Lago, it's the same thing then, right? In the sense that they make an allegation, then they leak something to the Washington Post, and they leak something to the New York Times. And like all these things turn out to be debunked over time, but the damage gets done. So it's very, very frustrating. I'm accused of treason. Um, my poor moms, you know, I, I had to beg her to stop getting Google alerts because she would be reading things that were very, very not true. And I'd be like, Ma, I promise I'm fine. I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, then I interview with a special counsel. So I do 16 hours, spend millions of dollars in legal fees, uh, 16 hours of testimony for the House to send with a special counsel. Uh, Bill Barr comes out, basically says, you know, the Mueller report is concluded after a year and a half and $35 million. And uh, yeah, there's no collusion. I'm saying, okay, like, you know, of course there's no collusion. We always knew that. Three days later, Richard Burr reaches out to my lawyer and says, Jared needs to come testify again. I was like, but this thing's over. It's done. And, um, 
And so he says, well, if he doesn't do it, we can give him a subpoena. So I'm saying, okay, and at that point, I, I was hitting my groove. My first year, I write about all my stumbles, how I'm fighting with everyone, everyone fighting with me, um, being accused of things. It was a rough year, and I try to put leaders into that experience. But now I'm starting to get progress on criminal justice reform, starting to get progress in the Middle East, starting to get progress on trade deals. And I kind of know my place. I'm, I'm not quite as good as I was at the end, but I was like getting good groove. But then I have to go take time to prep, to go speak to these things. And this is high stakes. So I've got to go testify again. Um, and I basically, dude, this thing is over. Like, what's, 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 what's the issue? So Richard basically threatens me with a subpoena. I don't want a subpoena. So I go in and I, I do it. Before he pulled me, I said, thank you so much for coming in. The stuff we're uncovering here is incredible. This is going to keep our guys busy for a decade. And I basically turned to him and says, what you guys are doing here, excuse my language, I said, it's bullshit. I said, what happened was, is, you know, everyone knows all these candidates, right? So these foreign governments know how to get to them. Trump was totally unknown. Nobody expected him to win and nobody knew how to get them. So after he won, there's a ton of unusual intel activity. Everyone was trying to figure out how do we influence him? What do we do? But the reality was, is this had nothing to do with the Russians, but they bought a couple ads on Facebook. I mean, they bought $100,000 of ads. Like, you know, we were buying $100,000 of ads every two hours. You know, it's like, yeah. it wasn't like a big thing. And basically he just said, Thank you so much. For, and he just moved on. But again, like he was wrapped around, uh, Warner had him wrapped around his finger and let him around on a leash. And, and they just spent two years as a Republican Senate investigating us instead of focusing on China or some of the big no. threats that we had or trying to get things done. So uh, I thought it was very embarrassing for our country. And what it's turned out to be, is just a very expensive waste of time uh, and, and zapping of productivity. You mentioned uh, and raised the, the recent raid on Mar-a-Lago. Obviously, across the country, there is enormous backlash among Republican voters who feel that this is another sign of uh, the former president now being unfairly targeted uh, by the DOJ, by the FBI, uh, in ways that are designed to serve partisan interest as opposed to uh, you know actually deal with any real threat of a national security issue or otherwise. Um, and yet, other than sort of people on social media saying, burn the whole thing down, you know, uh, uh, you know, let's uh, let's just start from scratch or something like that. What, from your perspective, would actually do the job of reforming the kind of institution that we we actually need as a country uh, in order to protect us, in order to secure ourselves and, and protect against very real threats in ways where. Republican voters, Democrat voters, independent voters can all have confidence that this is an institution that actually serves Americans uh, as opposed to some partisan interest. So I think that's actually like that's the question people should be asking now more than anything else. Right. And again, you know, I worked a lot on criminal justice reform. I will answer the question in a second. But to give some context, like I worked very hard on criminal justice reform because and I write about in my book about my experience with an overzealous prosecutor who I believe was politically motivated, who's a total ambitious political animal, uh, and Chris Christie, and what that's like and the damage that it can do to people. And what bothered me a lot during my time is that all of my friends on the left who worked with me on criminal justice reform were, were totally silent when people like Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn's rights were totally violated by the FBI, when the FBI uh, falsified affidavits to get uh, you know, wiretaps on, on Trump and his campaign, uh, they were quiet. And so people have become very partisan in their selective outrage against law enforcement from the left and the right. And I think that what we should agree on as a country is that 
you know, the, 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 the vast, 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 vast majority of, of law enforcement at the FBI and at other areas are, are trying to do good. They signed up for life of public service to keep us safe. But I do think we had uh, some real rotten apples at the top. I think that the decisions that, uh, that Jim Comey made at the FBI during the 2016 campaign and then to, you know, to, to keep Crossfire Hurricane going into investigative our administration and trying to jam us up or entrap us in the beginning were, were awful. And I think the FBI right now, the onus is on them to earn the trust back uh, for, from the people in the country. And so I do think they need some introspection. And, you know, one thing you see in my book is Washington is not a place that's like deep on introspection. Uh, it's also not deep on uh, political diversity of, of point of view. Like I said, I, I tried to be very open about my biases, but I don't think the media or a lot of these people in charge of these agencies in Washington are open about their biases. So if you take like the voting in Washington, it's 95-5 Democrat. If you had an election in North Korea, knowing that like whoever votes against the regime will probably be executed, they'd probably get more than 5%. So there, there's not a ton of groupthink. Uh, there, there's too much groupthink in Washington. And I think you need to really bring together uh, people who are from outside the system. And I think all it takes is one strong independent leader. But it's clear that that, that I don't think Chris Ray has done the job of, of making the FBI impartial. It's a very high burden. Again, he inherited a really messed up situation, but he's let too many of the people with political biases stay in the organization and he hasn't enforced in a good way. And what I'll say about this one is that it does feel to me like this is, again, first they said Trump was, you know, a Russian agent and there's an existential threat. Then they, you know, impeached him for, uh, for trying to investigate corruption in Ukraine, which turned out to actually be, you know, pretty, pretty accurate from all the things we've seen. And then now they're kind of tussling over paperwork. And I think they've done more to elevate whatever documents you know, are allegedly classified than Trump was doing by kind of doing this reckless raid and politicizing the FBI and the justice system in a way that, that shouldn't happen in America. So uh, I think that it, it takes strong leadership who are willing to be you know, open-minded, but I think they have to realize, too, is like the job of the media, as I've learned, is to try to convince 90% of the country to think like 2% of the country. And when you're in government, and if you're trying to conduct yourself in a way that's going to get you the approval of like the New York Times and the Washington Post, you're going to put in place policies that are, are going to be uh, not representative of the country, because I don't think that those institutions are representative. I know for a fact they're not representative of the country. And I think that unfortunately, that's the metric by which a lot of people in Washington try to abide by. Uh, but we were relieved of that burden uh, pretty early on of having to try to you know, live to their standard. The uh, president obviously came uh, to uh, uh, quite a lot of fame based on his tendency uh, and ability to, with great flourish, fire people. Is it ironic from your perspective that so much of the challenges of his administration uh, were expanded based on a uh, tendency toward being slow to fire someone like James Comey and obviously never firing someone like Anthony Fauci. That, that's a, a very reasonable conclusion to come to from my book and from the experience. But yeah, I, I think that that's definitely uh, one of the flaws. And, and I think that, you know, again, I hope that these lessons are out there for everyone who'll serve in future government to know that, you know, when you have bad apples or in some cases rotten apples, uh, the quicker you excise, uh, the faster you'll be able to just you know take your medicine and, and go back to doing the business you have. Because in Washington, it's it's a time duration game, and you know every day you know the clock the clock is ticking, and you've got to work to get things done. And so 
that, that's kind of the two currents in our book, right? On the one hand, in, in my book, is one hand you have, uh, you know, the, the constant investigations and the constant attacks from the media and the impeachments. But on the other hand, you know, it's factual that Trump got so many things done, whether it's the trade deals, the peace deals, the vaccine in record time, record low unemployment, record low in, uh, inflation, uh, low gas prices, wages were rising, and showing how all these things happened in a short time while also enduring all these other things that were trying to stop it. Mm-hmm. Brennan, Clapper, Strzok, McCabe, sometimes Comey, they're all all over the place on media uh, still, you know, particularly CNN. Uh, does that infuriate you? No, it doesn't bother me. I, I think that I, I learned in Washington that, you know, those who do usually don't talk and those who talk usually don't do. And, uh, you know, again, I think that if people are out there trying to politicize their positions or, you know, or play to a certain crowd for, for hits, I think it usually tells you more about that person uh, than anything else. But, but like mm-hmm. I said, I think the media has uh, a limited uh, or much more limited influence in the country than they used to have because uh, their point of view is, is, is so marginal, yet, yet, yet so many people don't agree with them. Uh did you get tired of the Daily Mail staking you out every day? <laughs> you know, like like many of the other uh, unnatural things that we experience, we just got used to it and, and navigated around it. Did you get to know them by name, the people, the photographers who were just stationed across the street all the time? Yeah, you know, you'd, you'd wave hello. They were doing their job. You know, again, <laughs> my, my kids, you know, sometimes we, we, we knew how to duck them when we needed to. Uh, you couldn't do it every day or else they'd figure out that there was a, a way to duck. But they, uh, but every time we would do it, my kids would say, no, but that's their job. That's how they earn their money. And we would say, yeah, today we're, 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 we're trying to figure out how to have a little bit uh, more anonymity. Uh, mm-hmm. reasons. So, yeah, but they, they were nice people just doing their job. And uh, we wish they weren't, but, it's, uh, but it's, uh, it was just one of the many realities of, of our life in Washington. How much of the difficulty that you had, at least in the early going in the administration, was out of a uh, a natural kind of inability to necessarily tell, coming from the a different world as you did, friend from foe, uh, the person who was simply you know trying to get ahead or make a buck off of their association with. Uh, you know, an insurgent campaign that didn't have the kind of traditional people associated with it uh, versus people who were actually in it because they thought uh, that they believed in the kind of argument that the president was making. Oh, that's, um, we had a very, we just didn't have too many friends in the beginning, right? We were such outsiders with such little Washington experience that it was hard to know who to trust. And you know, I always believe that friendships and, and relationships are built through shared experiences. And so, you know, the relationships are built in Washington from people who you're in an uncomfortable situation with, and nobody can get anything done by themselves, right? So you need to get people from different backgrounds, different places, coming together, agreeing on an objective, and then all rowing in the same direction and adjusting as needed in order to really accomplish anything. So it just was a natural evolution. But I will say one of the best things that Trump did was that he didn't allow anyone who signed one of these letters against him in the campaign to serve in his administration. And at first, that that was a major hindrance for us because so many people who are, quote, qualified weren't able to serve in our administration. It made us harder to staff up quicker. Um, but what that ended up doing was it eliminated a lot of people who had served before kind of in the Bush administration. And that made us find other people 
who now by conventional Washington standards are qualified and have brought a lot of what I would call fresh thinkers into Washington, uh, which enabled us to do it. So again, we, we ended up obviously with some mistakes some less good people, but a ton of amazing people who made a big difference. The negative, it seems to me, in terms of that inability to, or, you know, uh, a damaging ability to tell friend from foe is that it allows someone to seem like a friend simply via flattery, either via media or via other things. In other words, there's a very low bar to clear in terms of seeming like you're a friend uh, when in reality they can end up shiving you at the earliest opportunity. Do you think that's something that played out? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. No, it's uh, like I said, it's um, politicians. I, I didn't have as much respect for before I went to Washington, but I, I learned that they're like gladiators in the sense that, you know, they've got 50 people at home who want their job. They've got to figure out how to deal with their fellow congressmen or senators. They've got to deal with the media nonstop. And, uh, you know, funny, I, there's one experience where I was with Mike Lee and where, you know, when I had this revelation of you meeting with Mitch McConnell and the criminal justice reform bill that I write a lot about, and Mitch basically broke our hearts and said, no way, not giving you a vote this year. And, and Mike is just, and Senator Lee is one of the hardest working guys, very, you know, big believer in what he does, uh, totally earnest. And he basically is going crazy. He's very angry. And we walk outside McConnell's room, you know, four reporters, you know, put their mics in his face and says, oh, well, actually, it was a very good meeting. Went through this, you know, it was constructive. And I was like, the fact that he could switch 180 like that. And again, he didn't say that, like, I like McConnell or I'm happy or we're getting there. What he said was perfectly accurate. But he said it in like a much nicer tone than what he was saying, like 30 seconds earlier. And so it just showed me like these guys are very talented people. And uh, but that's the game. Right. And, and I learned early on, you could either you know, go home. But if you want to get things done, you have to learn how to adjust and get good at the game. And, and if you do get good at the game, there's a tremendous amount of good that you can accomplish. If you get Mike Lee mad enough, he might say, darn. <laughs> um, uh, you are blamed by people outside uh, the administration and uh, within conservative politics for all manner of things, uh, the most recent ridiculous example of which was some people on Twitter blaming you for uh, calling the FBI on uh, Mar-a-Lago, which I just I had to laugh at when I saw it scrolling. Um, why do you think you're blamed? Why do you think you receive the amount of blame that you do when it seems like you actually had a pretty limited portfolio that you concentrated on? Basically, after a certain point within the admin, you focused on criminal justice reform, you focused on foreign policy, and uh, and yet people blame you for all manner of, of immigration shifts to certain people being in the orbit and the like. Why do you think you receive that level of blame? Uh, I, I think, it, first of all, it, it was kind of something that was amusing, but it was so much, it was so big that there was no way to put it in, in the box, right? So you've got like a bunch of you know, crazy people on Twitter who are saying things and for whatever reason, because it's sensational, like they reward people for making crazy statements and they write it. And so you just can't fight back against that stuff. And so you just let it go. But I don't know. I think it was because I was there. I wasn't communicating. And by the way, maybe that was a flaw of mine that I wasn't out there being more deliberate about what I was doing and how I was doing it. Um, and maybe because I didn't define myself in the beginning, other people defined me and they created this kind of general definition that, um, that, 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 or caricature that, that fit with whatever narratives they, they wanted to uh, put on me. But I, I think that that's, again, why I'm happy I wrote this book was that anyone wants to know what I was doing, what I think, you know, 
where I'm from, what I was involved in, what I wasn't involved in. You can read the book. You can you can see for yourself. You want to know what I learned. You want to know the mistakes I made. You want to know you know the things I think I did well. Uh, but by all means, it's here. Uh, but it is quite amusing all the time that me and my wife, maybe because again, I don't fit a mold. Um, but and I do think the actions that I was always taking didn't always fit the narratives that people in the media wanted to have about me. But I think that the actions I was taking always were in furtherance of the objectives that I was clearly defined to accomplish. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, just to give you one extreme example of this, obviously, criminal justice reform is something that is popular or has been popular in certain segments of the American right and certainly uh, within the independent voters for quite some time. Uh, and yet some people use it as a sign of, of weakness when it comes to law and order, uh, uh, that it, it somehow the current, you know, uh, problems that exist in many American cities are uh, by dint of this type of thing. How do you push back against that type of narrative? Uh, so first of all, I think that details matter, right? So we got 87 votes in the Senate for the reforms that we did. And that has an asterisk because Richard Burr voted against it because he was pissed at Tim Scott for some judicial issue. And Lindsey Graham was in Afghanistan. So we should have been at 89. Um, I do think that there are some reforms that have been passed uh, in different states that have led to increasing crime, like these bail reforms, which mm -hmm. had nothing to do with the package that we supported. We were asked to support similar on a federal level and, and, and ran from them very quickly and, and told them that we didn't think that they would be good. What we did with the criminal justice reform is we actually got the law enforcement groups on board. I write about how we're able to do that. And the purpose of these reforms, just to be very clear for listeners as to uh, what they are, is that uh, they basically bring a lot of skills training into the prison. So we're 4% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prison population. People who leave, leave prison, they usually have a criminal record, uh, mental health issues sometimes, uh, uh, substance abuse issues. They're disconnected from their families. They go back to communities. If they can't get jobs, what are they going to do? They're going to go back to crime. So we have a very high recidivism rate, meaning that somebody leaves prison, goes and commits a crime in the future. So we know in our country where a lot of our future crimes are going to be committed by. They're people who are currently in our prison system. So that, it made a lot of sense. And actually, I give a lot of credit to Governor Perry in Texas. Uh, Brooke Rollins worked with him, who worked in the White House on this policy to develop it. And then it was uh, taken on by Governor Deal and Governor Brownback and other uh, great Republican governors who basically said, wait, we could actually lower crime and save money by taking the people who are in prison who committed crimes and let's make these prisons more purposeful and allow them to rehabilitate people. And again, this drew on my personal experience. I write about the meetings we had with the president who wasn't familiar with the policy initially to convince him of it. But I told him about uh, experience I had when my father was uh, serving his time in prison where I met a lot of people. Some were bad people, but some of them actually had made a mistake or had a bad circumstance and when given a second chance, made the most of it. So, you know, I do believe we shouldn't judge people by the worst decision they ever make. I think people are capable of redemption. I think they're capable of second chances. And I do think that from a society's point of view, the purpose of our prisons should be to try to rehabilitate um, instead of just to become a warehouse for, for human trash. And so, um, so that was something I was very, very proud we put forward. I think it's a conservative policy. I think it's a liberal policy. I think it's a common sense policy. Um, and something that's that, that, that I think is, has led to making communities safer. Unfortunately, there's been an overlay of anti-police sentiment and some of these awful bail reform laws that I think has led to increase in, in crime in communities. But my hope is that a lot of these politicians who are for them in a lot of these places are now starting to see the light and reverse courses, because I do think that as a politician, there's like two primary responsibilities. Number one is to keep your 
your constituents safe. And then number two is to give them opportunity for economic advancement to, to live a better life. And so uh, without the former, you can't really have the latter. Uh, and unfortunately, in this country, we have real issues now with crime in a lot of our big cities that, that needs to be uh, resolved. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask you this to, to wrap up. Um, I'm not asking you to tip your hand on anything, but uh, if you were to be preparing for uh, another presidential campaign, how would you go about it? Uh, what would you do? What type of vacation would you take? How, how would you talk to your kids about it? What would you do to prep for what you now are more familiar with in terms of the absolute grind that it represents? Yeah. So I, I try to write a lot about campaigns in my book because you know, we worked on two of them, and I think it's a primer for a lot of people who are interested in it. I, I think that what I, I learned about campaigns more than anything is that the candidate is what matters, right? The candidate, candidate, and then the climate. Uh, a whole campaign, all the ground game, all the you know the advertising, the money. I would say that that only will give you about like three to four points if it, if it really makes a difference. But the primary difference is the right candidate with the right message, and then. Everything else is just about kind of like margin optimization. But uh, from my personal point of view, you know, I am not planning for another campaign. I, I have no intention of being involved in another campaign. I think I've been there, done that. I believe in life. You go forwards, not backwards. And uh, and I, I just, again, I'm really so glad I got those experiences. I'm glad that now with my book, I'm sharing them with others. Um, but I, I'm very much enjoying my life with my children and being in the private sector and and uh, being down in the, the free state of Florida, which is uh, one of the most exciting places uh, in the country to be right now. Jared Kushner, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us and discuss your book. Thank you, Ben. Great to be with you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I wanted to share a few thoughts in terms of this current dynamic, this conflagration that we see playing out between Rick Scott, the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate. This has kind of spilled over into uh, the public light via a number of different comments from Mitch McConnell and from Rick Scott now in an op-ed in the Washington Examiner uh, and in an interview with Politico. It's a clash that I think a lot of people expected to happen, but maybe not in public in the way that it's playing out. Uh, essentially, uh, there's a lot of early blame gaming going on about the possibility that Republicans are not going to be able to take back the Senate. Mitch McConnell has been critical of a number of the candidates who were selected by Republican voters in the primary process. He didn't really play a role in the primary process this time around in a way that he had in the past, in part perhaps because that was an approach that really didn't play out well for him. He didn't get the kind of candidates in the past that he necessarily wanted, and his endorsement of various people essentially turned out to be something that could backfire. Rick Scott, as head of the NRSC, uh, really decided not to play when it came to uh, the primary process, with one exception. Essentially, he did work behind the scenes, along with many other people, conservatives and establishment types as well, to prevent Eric Greetens, the former Missouri governor, uh, from trying to have any real uh, possibility of attaining the Senate nomination from that state. But with that being the one exception, really everywhere else, Rick Scott seems to be, have been content to uh, step back and let the process play out. As we know, uh, the candidate favored by Donald Trump, with rare exceptions, uh, won in virtually every Senate primary battle. 
So you have the kind of lineup uh, that is backed by, uh, by uh, former President Trump uh, and in some instances is also backed by Mitch McConnell and by uh, the Club for Growth, the representation effectively of the conservative or typical kind of Ted Cruz voter type. Uh, and I mean, a good example of that would be a, a place like Nevada, where Adam Laxalt was endorsed both by President Trump, by Mitch McConnell, and by the Club for Growth. Uh, but that also is a situation that is pretty rare in terms of everyone being united behind one candidate. Essentially, though, now what you have is a roster that most Republicans you know, would say is a, a, a group of, of contentious kind of outsiders, people who uh, really are all of the mind of shaking up Washington in one way or the other. They include, obviously, uh, Dr. Mehmet Maaz, the uh, television figure in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker, the Heisman winner in Georgia, Blake Masters, the tech executive and Peter Thiel acolyte in Arizona, J.D. Vance, another Thiel-backed candidate in Ohio, uh, and a number of other candidates who don't necessarily have the kind of typical political background that you might expect. Now, you look at Missouri, you look at Wisconsin, you look at Oklahoma, you look at Alabama, and you could basically say these are more typical uh, Republican choices in terms of, of people who've come forward. But when you look at this roster, they are also not people who are kind of ridiculous. They're not silly candidates. They're people who are accomplished or famous. They have name ID. Uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, in many cases, you know, high level backers and the like. But the problem is, as many of these candidates have emerged from fractious primaries where they had to contend uh, with people on the opposite side of alliances, even if not ideologically all that different, uh, they've come out of it without a lot of resources, without a lot of money in order to make the rush toward November. Uh, and that puts the NRSC and Mitch McConnell in somewhat of a bind. They have to make choices about whether whether they're going to invest money in, in certain races and, and where they're going to invest money, uh, given the dynamics that are at play. Uh, in Mitch McConnell's case, he's weighed in in terms of, of uh, uh, you know backing certain candidates. In Ohio, he's gone in with a, a significant amount of money. At the same time, he's pulled it away from Arizona. Uh, because, you know, for a number of reasons, when it comes to looking at internal polls and dynamics, perhaps driven by, uh, you know, and the nomination of, of the more controversial gubernatorial candidate in, in Kerry Lake, you know, they've made the decision there that, you know, perhaps Blake Masters isn't where they want to put their money. Many Republicans in Washington are a lot more optimistic about Nevada than they are about Arizona. But one of the things that is playing out here is that there's a an internal fractiousness that is coming out in public in part because people are aware that this is likely Mitch McConnell's last go round as a potential majority leader for the Republican Party. If Republicans take the Senate in November, as many people still expect they will, despite you know Democratic optimism surging in the last couple of months, uh, then you end up in a situation where Mitch McConnell is in charge again. He has the ability to obviously run the Senate with an iron fist to prevent it from behaving in a lot of ways that, you know, many people believe the institution ought to. Uh, but that's something that is not long for this world from the perspective of many in Washington. They believe that an influx of a new generation of senators uh, represented by all the people who I just named could bring about a change in the leadership of the Republican Party in the Senate. 
Now, what does that change look like? Is it a shift that uh, goes to, as many people have expected in, in recent years, someone like John Cornyn from Texas, my old boss, or someone like John Thune, perhaps, from South Dakota? Many people think now that Rick Scott is becoming kind of the dark horse candidate to replace McConnell. Uh, he has a number of things to recommend him. Uh, as someone who is himself an enormously rich uh, uh, person, he has relationships with billionaire donors uh, that are personal and that have the capability to you know, withstand a lot of the different pressures of the current political environment. He's also someone who made a bet in the wake of January 6th that re uh, Republican donors in the small dollar amount would stick with President Trump and obviously was vindicated in that bet. But he is someone who you know, has perhaps rubbed people the wrong way when it came to advancing an agenda that proved pretty controversial in terms of his uh, policy proposals uh, that have, uh, you know, uh, essentially, you know, uh, ruffled the feathers of people like McConnell. He's also someone who may not be able to command the kind of trust or faith of everybody within the Senate that he would need to in order to contend with McConnell. But there is an appetite for change. It's very real. And so all of this fractiousness that's playing out should be viewed through that lens. It's really about this contest that is potentially ramping up between Scott and McConnell about the future of the GOP. It's not so much about actual disagreements when it comes to these candidates uh, or the ways that people ought to tactically approach trying to get them elected. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, you know, from the perspective of someone like Scott, the bigger the majority, the better. If he is someone who is able to, you know, uh, create a majority that has a significant number of senators, as opposed to one that depends on the likes of Susan Collins and potentially Lisa Murkowski, uh, then he's someone who a lot of Republicans who, who are going to have more respect for. But if it turns out to be a narrow, perhaps one or two seat majority, uh, then McConnell will be able to do the kind of things that he's done in the past over and over again. Uh, and that means guiding the conference in the way that he sees fit, according to a small number of members. It's an incredibly interesting uh, and potentially uh, party changing type of dynamic that's going on right now. And we will see what happens in November as being something that really affects this lens. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast. We will be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.